Good morning, Icon. Y'all can wrap up your conversations and have a seat when you get a chance. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Nate. I'm a community group leader here at Icon, and uh, the elders gave me the freedom to speak to you on any topic that I choose, and so um, can be dangerous. Um, uh, so I chose to, I want to speak to you this morning about one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and it's actually one of the most unique stories in the Bible as well. It's about a man who gets into a fight with God, like a real fist fight with God. At a certain point in this man's life, God shows up physically disguised as a human, and these two get into a wrestling match. The Hebrew word here is translated uh, literally, it, wrestle is the word in English, it's literally translated in Hebrew as uh, to get dusty. So God and this man get dusty, they roll around, it's an all-out brawl, and, uh, and as you might expect, God wins, big surprise. Um, but then something interesting happens. As God is standing victorious over this man that he just defeated, he says, I'm going to change your name. Your new name is Israel. It's the first time in the entire Bible that, that this, this word, this name Israel is used. And, and the name can have two meanings. First, it can mean uh, he strives with God. And second, it can mean God strives for him. So this man gets into a fight with God, literally throwing haymakers, and God responds by saying, I'm going to name my people after you. It's a very strange story indeed. If you've heard this before, you know I'm talking about the story of Jacob. Jacob's grandfather was Abraham, his father was Isaac. Jacob ended up having 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God chooses this moment immediately after this all-out wrestling match with Jacob to name his people after this man. So what I want to do this morning is sit in this story of this wrestling match that Jacob and God have and, and try to understand what it means for Jacob, what it means for us. But, you know, before we get there, I think there's some context. Jacob, like all of us, brings his personal story and all of the baggage that that entails into his encounter with God. And so what I want to do this morning is hit the wave tops of Jacob's life so we have some of that context before we sit down and slow down and, and sit in this story of Jacob's encounter with God. So that's the story. Um, that's the plan. We're going to start in Genesis 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. Uh, it's page 12. So like open up 12 pages, probably in the table of contents, 12 more pages, and you're in the, you're in the neighborhood. Genesis chapter 25, we're going to start in verse 19. And I'm just going to move through several stories in Jacob's life, and so you can follow along in your Bible, or you can just listen uh, as I'll read some of these passages uh, with you. So starting in verse 19 of chapter 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? She, so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means he takes by the heel or he cheats. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We'll stop there. So right from the beginning, family drama, right? So from the womb, there was a wrestling match between these two brothers. So much so, in fact, that their mother, Rebecca, says, there's something going on here, there's something wrong, and she goes to inquire of the Lord, and what does God say? God says, there's two nations in your womb, there's two brothers that are struggling with one another. And Esau comes out first, with Jacob holding his heel. Now, to be the firstborn in these times was incredibly important for a couple of reasons. First, by the customs of these times, Esau being the elder, being the firstborn, would be the heir of the family. He would be the financial, legal, and social heir of the family to carry on that family name. And secondly, specific to this family, Esau would be the heir of the promise to Abraham. He would be the one that, that would carry on the, God's promise to Abraham to bless him and to bless all the world through him. But God had other plans. In a prophetic response to Rebekah's prayer, God tells him, the promise to Abraham will actually be, f- be fulfilled through one of your sons, not both, and it will actually be the younger, not the older. So God says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Okay, so this is a very interesting dynamic right from the very beginning that would be challenging for even a healthy family to work through. This was not a healthy family. The parents pick favorites right from the very beginning. Esau is Isaac's favorite. Esau is a man's man. He's skillful with the bow, fleet of foot in the field. He's quick. He's full of hair and testosterone. This is Esau. Best of all, he cooks tasty meat for his dad. Like the text makes clear, this is a big differentiator for Isaac. Like it's simple, right? Like one of my sons brings me tasty meat and the other doesn't, right? Like very simple. Now, if some of you would look at that and look at Isaac and go, like what despicable behavior that a father would pick favorites between his sons because one cooks tasty meat and one doesn't. I would just, I would urge you for a moment to remember that men want like three things in life and tasty meat is one of them, all right? So I can't totally condone Isaac's behavior here, but like, I kind of get it, right? Jacob, on the other hand, is a man of the tents, right? Elsewhere, he's described as a smooth man, He can't grow a beard, he doesn't hunt, he probably grooms himself a little too much, and he's just like flat out like a mama's boy. So these are the two sons, right? Esau and Jacob. To reflect for a moment, like on Jacob's experience as a child growing up, he was probably reminded every day that he didn't measure up. The approval he seeks from his father is given to his rival instead. Jacob's childhood is characterized by reality and a constant, a constant remembrance of how inferior he is. I'm sure Jacob spent many lonely and painful hours as a child asking himself why he didn't measure up. What would it take to get his father's acceptance? There was probably many attempts to win his father's approval that were just brushed away. 
his mother would comfort him and his brother would gloat over him. I'm sure as a child there were periods of cycling sadness and anger and apathy. This was Jacob's childhood. This was the formative years of his experience, of his early adulthood and adolescence. And it's in the context of these family dynamics that we pick up in chapter 27 for the next major event in Jacob's life. So chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he said, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out in the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." But Jacob said to his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. So Jacob, despite common sense urging him otherwise, goes along with his mother's plan. He dresses up as his brother, brings the food that his mother cooked, brings it to his father, and fools his physically and like metaphorically spiritually blind father into giving him the blessing that he's been looking for and searching for his entire life. Jacob is so desperate to hear words of acceptance from his father that he's willing to dress up as something he's not. He's willing to suppress his God-given identity, put on a mask, lie, cheat, and steal to get the blessing that he's been longing for his entire life and get the blessing he does. But he, he knows it's a fake, right? He hears the words of acceptance that he's been wanting, but he knows it's not real. It doesn't cover those wounds that he's grown up as those, those, those festering wounds that have developed in his life, that sense of inadequacy and inferiority. I think this this search for acceptance is eminently relatable to us in our time. How many of us feel at times just an overwhelming sense of personal emptiness and sadness? I think we see it in all sorts of places in our culture. People put on a show, we put on the face, we put on the outward display of confidence. We flaunt our accomplishments, we flaunt our wealth, we flaunt our body, we flaunt the accomplishments of those we associate with. We post to social media, we tell a joke, we try to convince ourselves that somehow or some way we're okay. But under the masquerade, we know that just from the stats themselves, anxiety and insecurity and depression are rampant in our culture. Deep down under that veneer, there is insecurity, there is anxiousness, 
and those wounds that still exist. However real or however fake it might be, we seek that approval and acceptance in various places in life. Some have described this feeling as a, the eternal murmur of self-reproach, that constant nagging sense that somehow we lack. Some have called it the feeling of forever empty, a sense of an overwhelming sense of loneliness and lack. The Bible would, calls it a, a, a nakedness is the name the Bible uses for it, a sense of just being uncovered and vulnerable and inadequate. Jacob is wounded like us all, and he's here trying to silence that inner murmur, but he's doing it by trying to cheat and steal and get the blessing that was intended for his brother for himself. Unfortunately, there were consequences for his poor decisions. Of course, his brother, his father Isaac and his brother Esau, of course, find out about what's going to happen. He thought like he was going to keep it a secret or trick everyone, right? His brother's hatred of him grows to murderous proportions, and, uh, and, and Jacob learns that Esau is just waiting for the moment for his father to pass away for him to to kill his brother. And so Esau, Jacob knows that Esau's waiting for the moment to do him in, and so he has to flee. Jacob has to flee his family, has to flee everything he's known, and run for his life. And he runs his, upon his mother's advice, good motherly advice always at hand, he runs to his uncle, his mother's uh, brother named Laban. Laban lives about 300 miles-ish to the east, and uh, it's a long trip there back in that time, so Jacob makes that trip, and as he gets there, he meets his uncle Laban. And we'll pick up in verse, chapter 29, verse 13, when he, when he finally gets there and meets his uncle. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. All right, so more family drama. Laban has two daughters, two rival daughters, and here the text contrasts them. The younger's name is Rachel, and she's stunningly beautiful in both form and appearance. The older is Leah, and she has weak eyes. There's probably some kind of defect with her eyesight or eyes, but I think the text here really wants us to understand that she was also weak on the eyes, right? So you have these two sisters. One is drop-dead gorgeous, and the other not so much, and Jacob sees Rachel and just hook, line, and sinker falls in love. Let's see the, the meaning here in Jacob's life, where he's at emotionally as he, as he enters this moment. Things have not gone right for him thus far. He was the mama's boy. He was the one that his father didn't approve. He was the one that his brother would always gloat over and mock. And here's the chance to turn things around. He's on the run. He's like, here's my chance to be a somebody. Marry the supermodel. Right, like that's his answer, hook, line, and sinker. That's how he's gonna be a somebody. And like, you know, you read this and you're like, wow, man, like dudes like have seriously not changed in like a thousand years, right? 
um, a fairly dumb breed. So um, let's, let's pick up here in verse 18. Um, and he said, this is, this is Jacob's response to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Right? Like, somebody needs to give Jacob like a negotiations class, right? Like, like do not anchor on seven years of servitude, right? Um, like, I love you, Crystal, but I don't know about seven years. That's a lot, right? Um, Laban said, it is better that I should give, you to her, give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Come, come, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Okay, so there's obviously a lot of dysfunction that's going on right here. In Laban, Jacob finally meets a trickster bigger than himself, right? Laban sees an opportunity here to solve two problems at once. The first is, uh, you know, finds the, an opportunity to sell off his older daughter that he otherwise likely would have struggled to find a husband for. And second, he gets to keep Jacob around for another seven years of profitably free labor, right? Like, this is a win-win-win-win for, for Laban. And, you know, I don't know why Jacob is upset. I mean, Jacob is the trickster, and here Laban out-tricks the trickster, right? And so Jacob really has no grounds to be upset. But this is what happens. <coughs> the text here is trying to say something more profound, I think, as well. As we said, Jacob was a wounded person, and he sees this as the opportunity to find the spouse that will turn things around in his life. What does the text say? Behold, in the morning it was Leah. The author here is trying to tell us something. In the morning, it's always Leah. Sure, go ahead, find the perfect guy, marry the supermodel, find your one and only. So much effort in our culture is put into finding the one. But in the end, it's just another strategy to quiet that inner turmoil, to find assurance of being a somebody, and in the end, it will fail to bring you the peace and the enduring contentment that you seek. In the morning, it's always Leah. That's the message. Okay. So several things happened over the subsequent years in Jacob's life. First, there was a lot of family strife, as you, kind of meant, as you might imagine, like two rival sisters, right? Um, and, you know, Leah starts to have kids and Rachel can't, right? So you have this stunningly beautiful sister that can't have children. Then you have Leah, who is having children, and the two sisters are extremely jealous and hate each other. And you can imagine how that might go for Jacob, right? So Jacob's visions of the perfect family were far from his lived experience. And second, as the reality of, of a fractured family set in, Jacob did what any of us would do, right? And turns his mind to money, right? Like, okay, family's behind me, career's ahead of me, it's midlife, let me, you know, cement myself and cement my career and start to accumulate wealth. 
So he served Laban for 14 years, after which he's like, hey, look, I'm done serving you for free. It's been 14 years, right? So he's like, so they, they agree on um, what his wages will be. Now, Laban had been tremendously successful in these 14 years when Jacob was with him, and it became clear that God was blessing Jacob and therefore blessing Laban by association, and so Laban was going, I got to keep this guy around, right? But I've already, I don't have any more wives to trick him into like, you know, give him a third wife, right? And so they agree that um, Jacob, who was taking care of Laban's flocks, would get whatever whatever, you know, livestock, goats, sheep, little things, whatever, like whichever ones were striped when they were born would be Jacob's, right? And they go, great, like that's, the, you know, Laban, and that'll be like, you know, two, right? Like, perfect. All the flocks start breeding like striped, you know, livestock, and, and Laban goes, ah, I can't have that. You get the spotted ones, right? All the flocks start, you know, producing spotted calves, right? And so over the course of six years, Jacob starts to accumulate more and more wealth because God is blessing him. And Laban sees it as his wealth that Jacob's accumulating. And Jacob and Jacob's other, or Laban and Laban's other sons start to become increasingly jealous and angry. And there's enmity to the point where Jacob starts to fear for his life. And so Jacob says, you know, I got to get out of here. God shows up to Jacob in a dream and says, go back home. And so Jacob flees from Laban, gathers his wives, and like, you know, at this point, Leah and Rachel are like, our dad sold us off. We're out too, right? So the whole family's like ready to go, right? And they flee in the middle of the night to avoid like Laban attacking them. And he is on his way back home, but there's one problem, right? If Jacob's going to go back home, he has to face Esau, remember, the guy that wanted to kill him. This is a problem for Jacob, right? Let's pick up in this story here in chapter 32, verse 1. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Let's pause there for a second. So Jacob's greatest fears here are starting to become reality. He tells his brother he's returning, the brother that wanted to kill him, and his brother says, okay, I'll come out and meet you with a militia, right? And so... Esau's coming out with all these armed dudes, and Jacob can't retreat because he just burned those bridges with Laban, and so he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Everything Jacob has, his wives, his children, all of his wealth, is now in the hands of his greatest rival, who last time he saw him wanted to kill him, and he's bringing a militia with him. Okay, this is a moment of great anxiety, great distress, great fear for Jacob. And to be fair, Jacob had put himself in this position, right? Like years of scheming and cheating and misguided ambition and continued self-reliance had brought him to this moment of crisis. This was of his own doing. 
And notice something. What's his immediate response when he gets into this moment? He's like, he starts to immediately continue those patterns of behavior and self-reliance that had been embedded in his life over years. He immediately begins to scheme. He's like, okay, we're going to have two groups, right? Group A and group B. Like, you know, guess which one Rachel's in, right? She's in group A, right? Uh, and, and, and like, if one attack, he starts to scheme and make these plans. He starts to build this plan and the diagram, this strategy, in his head, and he's like, I can do this, like, I have a plan, I just need to execute it, right? I just need to execute this plan, I have the capability to overcome in this situation. It, it, to me, this seems like just the portrait of the modern, modern individual. An external veneer of independence and self-reliance and capability to solve anything thrown his or her way, and inwardly overwhelmed by anxiety, deeply afraid, and insecure. So let's see how this story unfolds in verse 9, chapter 32. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For only with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you, and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And, who, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are sent as a present to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and set them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Several things here. First, notice the lukewarm heart that Jacob has towards God. Jacob starts by remembering to pray and says this beautiful prayer in which he recalls the promises of God and remembers God's steadfast love and his past faithfulness and asks for God's help in this moment of crisis. But then the prayer feels like it's almost cut short as Jacob resumes his scheming. Notice how much space the text devotes to Jacob and his plans. Like like the author here is clearly trying to peel back the the curtain of Jacob's heart and show how much energy and how much 
uh, of just Jacob's mental space is being devoted to strategy and reliance and, and plans. Yes, he says a nice prayer, but then he quickly shifts back into a mode of self-reliance as he further refines and develops his previous strategies. Now, now notice, like the, the first plan was there was two camps, right? He's since evolved his plan. Now there will be many droves. Each drove will carry a gift, and, and each drove is meant to say the specific phrase to prepare Esau emotionally, and Jacob would be the last drove and would show up at the end after all these presents have come. Notice also that Jacob's plan allows him to stay in the back, to keep an, uh, you know, an eye on the battlefield, to be able to maneuver at the last minute should anything go awry, and even perhaps to escape himself if his first wave, the first family is attacked. Jacob liked the idea of God as his helper, but he was unwilling to fully rely on God in this moment. Or said another way, his heart wasn't ready to rely on God in a way that would really cost him something if God didn't come through. Second, notice the aim of Jacob's heart. He says, I may appease Esau with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. This was the mantra of Jacob's life. As a child, Jacob had looked at his father and said, perhaps he will accept me. Then it was, if I marry Rachel, perhaps I'll be accepted. Then it was, if my career is successful enough, I have enough money, perhaps I'll be safe, perhaps I'll be accepted. And now it's, if my plans and strategies succeed, perhaps my brother will accept me. It's important to remember that in this context that, that Jacob had known for his entire life that he was in fact the chosen one, not Esau. Remember that prophecy to his mother? I mean, surely his mother had told him that as a child. Like, Jacob knew that God had chosen him and not Esau to be the heir of the promise to Abraham. Jacob knew it in his head but that head knowledge had not migrated to his heart. He knew he was accepted, but he didn't, you know, like, know he was accepted. He hadn't experienced the depth of peace and contentment and joy that come from knowing all will be well because God is here. Because of that, he looked everywhere and anywhere for anything that would give him a sense of peace and hope, and typically it was his own plans and his own schemes. And here, his hope was in his brother's acceptance. Perhaps Esau will accept me. Third, notice how alone Jacob was in this crisis. Jacob's self-reliant heart had made its plans, and the night before he would meet his brother, he began to put them in motion. Right? He sends his families and their droves across. There's a, a stream, and he knew that he'd be meeting his brother in the morning. Right? And so he begins to put his plans in motion. He sets up his family in these droves. Each of them has their present and their script. They're moving across the, across the stream, and he's left alone on the other side of the river that night as the last drove. The text here wants to make a point, though. Jacob was alone in every sense of the word. 
Yes, Jacob was physically alone out in the middle of the desert that night. But he was also spiritually and emotionally alone. There was no one to help him. He was by himself, utterly alone, to face the riskiest, most dangerous moment of his life. The point here is this. Self-reliance leads to loneliness. Not only do our own schemes to find acceptance in the various ways in which we rely on ourselves create the crises in our lives, but they leave us alone in them. It's a double-edged sword, self-reliance. It gets us into problems and it leaves us alone in those problems. How many of us can resonate with that? We feel alone in the desert wilderness. Perhaps some of it we're willing to confess is of our own doing. Some of it is stuff done to us as well, but we feel alone in that desert wilderness. That's where Jacob is, right here. And it's in this moment that God decides to show up. Pick up in verse 24. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose on him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So Jacob is deeply alone in the desert wilderness the night before he and his family might die. And God decides to show up in that moment, and he does it in one of the most interesting ways possible. Dressed as a man, God wrestles with Jacob all night long. He gets dusty with Jacob. It's almost as if God wants to make physically manifest what has been the spiritual and emotional reality in his relationship with Jacob for his entire life. He is playing out his relationship with Jacob in the most literal way possible. It's as if God is saying, Jacob, you've wrestled with your brother, you wrestled with your father, you wrestled with Laban, but really, Jacob, it's me you've been wrestling with your entire life. You've looked everywhere for acceptance but me. You've looked everywhere for blessing but me. You've looked everywhere for safety and security but me. You've been fleeing from one thing to the next your entire life. And now you're about to go into the most dangerous, most anxiety-ridden moment of your life, and you're about to run away again. You're about to go into that and try to fix it yourself. You're going to go into that, and you're going to go into it alone. And God, in this moment, looks at Jacob and says, 
I am not going to let you do that. God was determined to not let Jacob go into that moment alone. Despite Jacob's lukewarm, half-committed heart, despite his lifelong habit of pushing God away and trying to do it himself, despite his tendency to marginalize God in his life time and time again and give nice prayers but really have his heart rest on something else, Despite all of that, God was steadfastly committed to winning Jacob's heart. So much so he was willing to get skin close and actually take punches and and take a headlock from Jacob, right? God was willing to reduce himself to that to win Jacob's heart. We can run as far as we want out into the desert and God will never stop chasing us there. God's love is more stubborn than our hearts. He will chase us, he will wrestle us, he will fight us, he will go to whatever length he needs to go to win our heart back and to not let us wander off alone into these crises that lie ahead. And in fact, he's even willing to wound your heart and to wound you to win your heart back. At the end of this wrestling match, Jacob still hasn't submitted, so God decides to reveal himself. With a single touch, a little pop, Jacob's hip is put out of joint, and it becomes clear with that burst of power in that moment that God has been restraining himself all night long. God has been toying with Jacob all night long. It gets to the end of the night, and because God, because God would not allow himself to be seen in the light, as day starts to break, God says, I'm out, I gotta go. Touches Jacob's hips, and in a burst of power, Jacob is done. God uses this final move to bring Jacob's heart to its knees. Think about it. Jacob is going to meet his brother with his 400 soldiers in the morning. And God is putting Jacob in a position where, Jacob, you're not running away. Like, you're limping tomorrow. You have no hope, zero hope tomorrow, but to trust in me. No running away this time, Jacob. No fleeing this time, Jacob. I'm literally limiting your options. You have nowhere to go. What are you going to do now, Jacob? Don't think that God won't go to those same lengths in our own lives. God loves you too much to let you go alone. He is willing to use pain to win your heart. He is willing to limit your options to win your heart. Sometimes God has to allow pain or to limit our options because it creates the right environment for knowledge that we have up here to make it down here. He knows that what we need is a knowledge and a relationship and a closeness and a tenderness with him. And he's willing to take away the things that we hold on to out here to bring our hearts to the place where we might know him in here. Here's the point. What might seem like God's fight against you in your life is actually God's fight for you. 
And in Jacob's life, it works. I have this picture of Jacob on the ground with a blown hip, clinging to the feet of this man that he now suspects might be God, and God standing over him, over him victoriously, like you would fight me, Jacob. And finally, for the first time in Jacob's life, Jacob looks up to God and says, and God only, and says, accept me. Bless me. And you know what? God does. God accepts him. And to signify this moment of spiritual transformation, God gives him a new name. Your name shall no longer be Jacob. Your name shall be Israel. Remember that name means he strives with God, but also that God strives for him. I want to end with the portrait here of a changed man. Let's read the first couple verses in chapter 33, and we'll close here. Chapter 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Joseph here confronts the demons of his past with the confidence of a new man. Remember the plans? He was going to be the last person in the drove. Right? He, he was going to see the battlefield before him and be able to pivot and be able to run, be able to do whatever he needs to do. He was going to keep control of the situation. That was the plan. He encounters God. The plans change. Now, he, he still wants his family in droves, so, like, you know, it's smart if, you know, if, Esau attacks him like they can run, but like now he's out in front. Now he's the litmus test. He's not behind like a coward, right? Like letting his family be the test to see how Esau would respond. He's going in front. He's not relying on gifts to soften Esau up. He's relying on God's power to deliver him in that moment. It is the confidence of that encounter with God. He knew that God is with him, that God will bless him, that God will come through on his promises, and he is freed up to lead his family in the way that he should lead his family, to confront his brother first, face to face, the way that he should. The portrait of a changed man. Friends, if Jacob had a wrestling match to prove God's love, to prove that God would come down skin to skin close, to prove that God would wrestle him and take a punch for him. How much more, how much more sure should we be looking back and knowing the extent of God's love for us on the cross of Jesus? Jacob had a wrestling match. We have the Son of God on a cross how much more sure can we be that we are accepted, that we are loved, that we don't need to look in all of the places, that, that there is something that God comes to offer us that can quiet that inner murmur, that can quiet though, that, that sense of lack and, and inadequacy and nakedness, whether it's things that we've done or things that have been done to us. 
the Bible describes the gospel of Jesus on the cross as coming to clothe us in righteousness. Yes, to, in a legal sense, to bring rightness and to atone for our sins, but also to clothe us. To, to, to wash away that sense of inadequacy, to wash away that fear, that overwhelming sense of loneliness and lack, the cross of Jesus comes to clothe us in righteousness. And it's my prayer that as a church, as families, as individuals, we would sit in that this morning. I'm going to close us and pray for us. And as we take a moment here, we're going to take a moment to, to reflect upon this story, to reflect what God wants us to hear in this story. And then we're going to take communion. As we take communion, let it remind us, it's a physical representation that God gave us something more sure than a wrestling match, right? The, the, the crunch of the bread, the broken body of Jesus, the wine, or the, the juice representative of his blood that was shed, a sure, fast anchor for our soul that God loves us, that he accepts us, that he will go to any length to not let us go forward alone. So I would, I would just invite you this morning to sit in those truths and to allow the tangibility of communion to remind you in a different way of those same truths. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the promises that you've given us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, Lord, that you meet us in our sense of lack. You meet us in the problems we've created for ourselves. You meet us where we are vulnerable and weak. Lord, and you speak truth into those. I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be convicted in where we are looking to other things, to our own, where we are being self-reliant in various ways, Lord, that we would confess that to you. And like Jacob, who's on the ground clinging to your feet, asking for blessing, that we might have that same posture. Lord, that we would look to you and you only to give us the blessing and peace and acceptance that our souls need. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow that to transform us, allow that to change us, Lord. Allow that to, to manifest itself in different ways or new ways of living, <laughs> that we would be confident in you, we would face trial and tribulation with peace and stillness and contentment, and that we might face the uncertainty ahead with the confidence of knowing that you are with us. And Jesus, may this respond most of all in just hearts of gratitude and praise to you, Lord. And I pray that you would just be working in, in our hearts this morning. We might sing a praise of thanks to you, Lord, in response to what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.